Speaking of my son, Josh, uh, Josh is someone that I'm super proud of. He is, um, yeah, he's a senior in high school, and so uh, he's, he's uh, making uh, plans for next year as uh, God leads his life to college. And so he's been accepted into a college that, honestly, I never heard of until maybe the last year or so, um, a college called Embry-Riddle University. Raise your hand if you ever heard of Embry-Riddle University. All right, we have a couple nerds in the room, couple nerds and his mother, and his mother. But Embry-Riddle University is a university in Daytona, Florida, and uh, it is a university with nothing but rocket scientists that attend it, right? Um, these guys and gals, uh, although the, the student body is three to one, guys to girls, so we need to pray for Josh. He doesn't have much selection out there. Um, but um, the, the goal of this university is to literally train up aerospace engineers and rocket scientists, right, that will lead the, the way into the next, into the future in terms of our space exploration as a as a country, and uh, what, a, what a unique opportunity my son has to go into that environment. God certainly equipped him and gifted him with a brilliant mind, way beyond my own mind. I don't know where, where his intelligence came from. I can only explain it was a gift from God. It was a gift from God. And so um, I'm really excited about him and his journey that, that God is going to take him on, on the next several years as he studies that field of study and represents Jesus in an environment that is very scientific and, and really needs voices of truth in that environment. So will you pray for Josh as he moves forward? Um, we're going to have a few more months with him, and then uh, I believe in August or September he'll be heading back to Florida um, to begin his university studies there. So I just wanted to uh, highlight that because this morning I want to talk a little bit about one of my uh, favorite movies, Apollo 13. How many have seen the movie, Tom Hanks? Um, Apollo 13, it's, it's an edgier seat excitement about our, um, our journey to the moon as uh, Americans. Um, I wasn't around in 1969. Any, was anybody there to see it live? All right, look, look at all these hands up, right? They're admitting that they're senior citizens. No, um, uh, but... But all I've been able to see is the reproduction, the Hollywood version of Apollo 13. And uh, it was pretty impactful to see um, the Apollo, uh, I believe it was Apollo 11, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and I can't remember the third guy, um, landed on the moon, on the surface of the moon. And man walked on the moon, and there was that famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, that were, that were uttered on that journey. But just two missions later, Apollo 13 um, ran into a problem. You remember that? Houston, we've got a problem. And uh, one of the things I, I'm just always amazed about is, is just how, um, how there are so many systems in play in a journey like that. There are so many different elements that go into a successful mission. And uh, in the movie Apollo 13, as they're about to launch into space, there's all these different uh, checks that they're going through. And they're basically calling out this area, like calm, communications, and they would respond, it's a go. We're a go. We're a go for launch. And there begins to be this, this whole journey of going through all of these different stations, and if any one of those is not in place, the, the 
mission needs to be aborted. It cannot proceed, right? And as we, as we come to our text this morning in the book of Nehemiah, we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're looking at how hope, the hope and the glory of God in Israel is being restored. It's being um, brought back into focus in the nation. Remember, they had gone through a time when they were a glorious nation. King Solomon, uh, the Bible tells us, was during his reign uh, on the entire earth. There was no greater nation than the nation of Israel. There was no richer nation, no more powerful nation. And so they had come from these heights of what God had established for them on earth as they had followed his plan. And then they started to choose paths that weren't a part of his plan, right? They rebelled against God, his authority, his rule, his laws, and they began to suffer the consequences. And by the time Nehemiah is written, by the time he is on the scene, they are in, living in exile. They are living in depravity, brokenness. There is a real problem. And, and so Nehemiah hears a report from Jerusalem that there is just nothing glorious that's taking place there. And his heart is just broken because he knows that Israel was called to be the hope of glory. It was called to be God's people on earth, ambassadors for the message of hope that's found in a God who loves and creates new hope. And so in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this destruction, Nehemiah is sent to Jerusalem to restore the wall around the city. And the wall really is a representation of both the security of the people, but also it's a representation of something new that God is going to establish with his city, Jerusalem. And so we come to the passage in Nehemiah 3, and it's kind of like that mission of Apollo. All the systems are reading go. It's time to go. It's time to rebuild. Nehemiah had gotten permission from the king at that time. Artaxerxes was his name the king of Persia. And he had given Nehemiah authorization. He had given Nehemiah permission to go there. Not only just permission, but he had appointed him governor over the region for a a certain period of time. So he had given him his own authority. He had given him resources. He had given him passageway, unobstructed passageway to accomplish rebuilding the wall. Now, keep in mind Artaxerxes was at war with Egypt. He was at war with other forces that were coming from Greece. And so Israel, or the Levant region of Palestine, was a very important region for the king of Artaxerxes of Persia to establish a fortress, a stronghold there. So not only was he helping this servant, Nehemiah, that had gained favor, he was his cupbearer. He was kind of like his the guy that was in charge of all of the other attendants of the king. And he had pleased the king. He had served him well. And so on one hand, he's given him permission to go because you've, you've just won my heart over, Nehemiah. But also he has a strategic desire for this wall to be established, for a stronghold to be established for Persia to fight against their enemies. And Nehemiah was the man. And now we come to chapter 3 in the story, in the text, and all systems are go. It's time to get busy to build. How many have ever been there where you've planned something for quite a while? Maybe it's a a remodel of your home. Maybe it's you've been dreaming about something that you really wanted to see get off the ground, maybe a business venture. 
something like that. And all of the prep work has been established. Everything's ready to go. What's next? It's actually getting busy, right? Getting your hands dirty. Yesterday, I was here from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. I only did two hours, but it was physical manual labor, right? Shoveling bark, wheelbarrowing it from one place to another, trying to help get the property ready as we celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection next week. And we welcome our community in. And so it was, it was hard work. It was hard labor. It was time to get busy. And what was encouraging is to see that I wasn't alone in that effort. Amen? And when I left at 9 a.m. to go to my son's baseball game that I'm a manager of, so I kind of had to be there, um, when I left, there was plenty of workers still there, still accomplishing the work. And when I returned at about 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, um, the, it, it, everything was done. It was, it was really cool to see what God had done through his workers here at Crossroads. And it's the same thing. In, in Nehemiah 3, we're going to get a report. Nehemiah accounts for this fact that the work is being established and, and completed. Um, my question this morning as we begin is this. What are you building with your life? I want you to think about that for a second. What does your life represent to the people around you? What would they say is the most important thing that you're doing with your life? What are you building with your life? Two questions as we, as we journey into Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning that I want us to have in mind. Does what we're building in our lives bring glory to God? Does what we're building in our lives, with our lives, bring glory to God? Does it bring God glory? And number two, does it benefit those around you? Is the focus of what your life is doing is bringing glory to God? And number two, is it benefiting those that God has placed in your life? Nehemiah 3 is really an accounting of those two things. Because Nehemiah is committed to the glory of God. He was burdened to hear that the city that was representing the name of Yahweh God, Israel's God, to the world around them was lying in ruins. It hurt his heart to hear that message. And he wanted nothing more than for God's glory to be restored. And so he was willing to sacrifice, to use his life to make sure that the glory of God could be proclaimed once again in the city. And it certainly benefited those who lived in the city to have a wall built. A wall represented in that day protection from your enemies. Fortification. Does what you're building in your life bring glory to God and does it benefit those around you? Let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 3. Join me in verse 1. And I, I'm just going to apologize up front. There are a lot of names in this text. And uh, so, you know, if you're looking for a name for one of your kids one day, this is a good section to look for. And then nobody will be able to pronounce your kid's name, and that'll be fun. Um, but I'm going to do my best, but you'll probably get some butchering, but you probably don't even know what the real pronunciation is. So um, you can't criticize me after. Let's start. Elishib, the high priest, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. 
They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. So Nehemiah begins the accounting of the work with a gate that was at the north part of the city, a gate called the Sheep Gate. What's interesting is he's going to work his way counterclockwise around the entire city as the construction began on this wall and the gates that were inside certain sections of the wall in order to enter and exit the city. And Nehemiah begins with an interesting choice. He begins and he ends, in verse 32, with the sheep gate. The sheep gate. Now I have a um, photo. I was hoping to get the map up there. Can you see that? It's pretty hard to see it, huh? Here's another reason we need a giant screen up front. Don, Don, we need it. Don's giving me the thumbs up. Anybody got 50,000? We can get a big giant LED screen up here. Just drop that in one of the boxes after the service and we can see our maps better. But the, uh, the map represents the sheep gate and it's way up here in the, uh, the upper right-hand side of the city wall. The Sheep Gate was a place that the uh, people of Israel would bring in their sacrifice to be dedicated to the temple. Because the temple was located right there in that northern part of the city, just inside the Sheep Gate wall. The priest would serve there. That's why you have the high priest here, um, Elishab. He is leading the effort to help build at the Sheep Gate along with his fellow priests. Um, I want to uh, go to another image. Can we go to another one of the images? Um, yeah, that's the one I wanted to go to. Um, what we just saw is basically this little section here on the right-hand side. That was the only part of the wall that was there in Nehemiah's day. That's the part that they restored. But what we have here is a picture of um, Jerusalem during Jesus' day. Jesus' day. And so you can see the expansion of the city from the time of Nehemiah, which was about 440 years before Christ, to the time of Jesus' day, where the city had a much broader um, wall that went around it. What's interesting, though, is the temple was still accessed by the Sheep Gate in Jesus' day. And today is what day again? Palm Sunday. And Jesus rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, and it says that he entered through the sheep gate. The sheep gate, right? Because that was access to the temple grounds. And it was declaring that the Lamb of God had arrived. The Lamb of God had arrived. You know, um, Nehemiah begins and ends with the sheep gate. Why? I believe there's three reasons why. Number one, sacrifice is and was important to God. You know, sacrifice was something that was required each and every year. As a matter of fact, three times a year, the people were to bring in their sacrifices to the temple. And there were different elements of those sacrifices that God would look at and say, okay, for one more year, your sins will be covered. You are forgiven for this offense for one more time. But they'd have to keep bringing sacrifice after sacrifice. And over and over, they would bring in their sheep through the sheep gate. 
Number two, salvation came through a lamb. Salvation came through a lamb. You remember that the lamb of God, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus was sacrificed, which is going to, we're going to remember in just a few days on Good Friday, when Jesus was sacrificed, when he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, and he looked at those who were nailing him to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're crucifying the Lamb of God. But it was appointed before the foundations of the earth for me to come and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so salvation came through a lamb, and that lamb was Jesus. And someday, the Messiah would arrive. In that day, in Nehemiah's day, they were still looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice. They were looking forward to a Messiah that would come and deliver them. I have another... Um, let's, let's keep reading real quick. Uh, verse 2. The men of Jericho built next to Elisha, and next to them Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. I wanted to uh, throw up one of those other images. It should be uh, an image with uh, that one right there. So do you guys see the green line there? The green line that went around? Um, the wall that Nehemiah was building was within that kind of pink or salmon color. That was the area of the temple being up at the north, the sheep gate, and then you can kind of see the fish gate over on the left-hand side. Um, the other section, that, that one that says number two, it's the green highlighted one, that was a, um, a section that had been built in the final days of Judah's power when they were um, expanding and they were, they were growing. And it was called the broad wall. It was the broad wall of protection. And we have a mention that um, these workers were working and establishing the, the new wall in Nehemiah's time to the broad wall. Now, it's interesting, the broad wall, or that green section, is still evident in Israel today. You guys have the, the next uh, image? That's the um, foundation of the broad wall that existed in Nehemiah's time. Um, it was... It was already destroyed down to the foundation, and they were using the rubble from that wall to reestablish the new wall that was being built in Nehemiah's time. And uh, what I find interesting is how, um, how there was no need to go and quarry new stones because everything God had prepared for them to use was already on site. Isn't that a blessing? 
How many of you guys had to drive and get the bark yesterday, those of you who were here to work? Or was the bark already here on site? It was already delivered, right? It was like God had already delivered what we needed. Now, there was some planning that went ahead of that, right? And in this time, God had done the planning. He had made sure that everything that was necessary for the workers to rebuild was on site. Now, of course, the gates had been burned, and they were made of wood. And so there was a need to rebuild and to bring in the gates of Jerusalem. And that was done because Nehemiah was given permission from the forests and the different things that uh, Artaxerxes had power over to grant them all the wood that they needed. Now, my son Micah, he works with wood. He's a woodworker. He's very talented, very skilled. And uh, he can tell you how expensive wood has gotten over the last couple of years. Uh, how many of you guys have experienced that yourself? Yes. And so it was such a gift to be able to be given all the wood that was needed by the king in order to establish the gates. And so the fish gate was a, a gate where they'd bring in the catch from the sea, whether it was the, the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean Sea, or even the Jordan River, they would bring in their catch into the city through the fish gate. What kind of worker are you for God's glory? That's my question. In this passage that we just looked at, we saw a few people. Elishib, he started strong, but life got complicated. As we read in Nehemiah all the way to chapter 13, we find out that his daughter happened to marry one of the guys who was opposing this work in Jerusalem. His name was Sanballat. And Elishab, the high priest, turned from a guy who led the effort to rebuild the sheep gate and that section of the wall to a guy, to a guy who started to side with the opposition. You know, sometimes as Christians, we start out strong. We begin to do the work God has for us, but at some point along the way, life gets messy. Life gets complicated. And sometimes we begin to be a turncoat. We begin to side with the things that are going to hurt and destroy the effort that God is trying to establish of rebuilding his glory. Does it happen? It certainly happens, and it happens in the church. We need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves because Elishab wrecked himself. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, and we'll get there in chapter 13, it talks about how he began to side with the enemy that was opposing the work that Nehemiah was trying to build. Or, or maybe we're the nobles of Tekoa. The nobles of Tekoa. Here in this, this verse, in this passage, it mentions these nobles were too important. They had their own agenda to consider. They were, didn't want to get messy. So they did not lift a finger, the Bible tells us, to, to help with this work of rebuilding the wall. You know, there's a lot of Christians in the churches, or so-called Christians in the churches, that refuse to lift a finger. They're too busy. They have their own agenda. What kind of worker are you for God's glory? I hope that you're the third option, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was humble. He was faithful. He was an encourager. He was someone that got dirty and did the hard work. He didn't just talk about it or try and recruit others. He was right there in the midst of the work. 
helping and doing and leading. God's called us to be Nehemiahs, not nobles of Tekoa, and not the high priest who started strong, but ended really poorly. God is looking for faithful workers for his work. Let's continue. Jehoiada, son of Paseah, and Meshullam, son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Perariah, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. There's again the mention of the broad wall that they were working on. Next to them, Rephaiah, son of Ur, ruler over half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jedediah, son of Harumoth, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashemniah, made repairs. Milkajah, son of Hiram, and Heshub, son of Pahath Moab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the tower of the ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Halosahesh, ruler over half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. What is interesting about this section is, who has God called to work for his glory? There are several groups and people mentioned here that I think are important for us to consider today. Number one, ethnicity doesn't matter to God. Do you notice that there are people who are Israelites and then there are people who are not Israelites? People who came from outside of Israel, from other countries. They heard that God's glory was being rebuilt and restored and this man Nehemiah was appointed by the king and they came and contributed to the glory of God. Ethnicity doesn't matter to God. Gender doesn't matter. Do you see who was alongside in that final verse? They're repairing. It says in verse 12, it says that um, Haloesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs he and his daughters. Can girls get their hands dirty? Yeah, they raise children. I know they're getting their hands dirty, right? Gender doesn't matter to God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that it doesn't matter whether we're male or female. We are one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Background doesn't matter. Did you see some of the different uh, jobs and occupations? There were like perfume makers working on a wall. Goldsmiths, right? These guys didn't have experience with building projects necessarily. That leads to my next one. Expertise doesn't matter. Sometimes you're like, well, I can't work in the nursery because I don't know how to do that. I'm not an expert with children. You don't have to be an expert to contribute, to 
be a part of what God wants to do. Status doesn't matter. It didn't matter what their status was. You remember some of these guys were rulers over Jerusalem. And yet they didn't allow their status to get in the way of getting their hands dirty and joining the work. All that mattered was answering the call. Answering the call. My question to you is, have you answered the call of God to get busy in helping to establish His glory right here at Crossroads Church and displaying that to a community that needs to see Him? We all should be contributing. Amen? Amen. Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. The dung gate is in the southern section of the city. Verse 14. Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler over the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalun, son of Kol Hozor, or Hosea, ruler over the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shalah, next to the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. It was interesting because um, the pool of Shalah was later known as the pool of Siloam. And you remember what happened at the pool of Siloam in Jesus' day? Jesus healed a man who was born blind. Jesus healed a man there at the pool of Shalom. In verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, this is not the Nehemiah who is writing this report, this is another Nehemiah, popular name in that day, son of Azbu, ruler over half the district of Bethzur, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Likely this was in David's day, there was an established monument that existed. And it was known as the House of the Warriors. Those were David's mighty men. You can read about them in, in the book of First and Second Samuel. There were 30 mighty men of David who helped um, defeat the enemies of Israel. And there was probably a shrine, a monument, the House of the Warriors that was established. And so they're making repairs in that area of the city. In verse 17, next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rahum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler over the half-district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow, fellow Levites made repairs under Benai, son of Henadad, ruler over half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Azer, son of Jeshua, ruler over Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. There were all of these repairs being made, and they were being made for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read these words. The Apostle Paul writing about the church, he says this, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the body is not one part, but many. 
God has placed each one of the parts in one body just as he wanted. Just as he wanted. And in Psalm 133, it says this, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. What God is looking for here in this section is how every, every people that were in the city, they begin to cooperate with one another. Are they arguing with each other? Hey, this is my section. Get out of my... No. They're not doing that. They're cooperating. And together as there's cooperation, and each part is doing its specific work, and they're valuing one another. And they're like, man, I need you because I don't know how to do this part. And you're closer to this section. Get that done and I'll be working over here. And as there began to be cooperation, the walls came up. And God's glory was being renewed and revived. In verse 20, after him, Baruch, son of Zabbai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of Elisha, the high priest. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakuz, made repairs to another section from the door of Elisha's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Mahasiah, Son of Ananiah made repairs beside his house. After him, Benoi, Benoi son of Henadad, made repairs to another section, from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzziah, made repairs opposite the angle and the tower that juts out from the upper palace of the king by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Aphel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Aphel. What's interesting about this particular section of verses is each of these mentioned that somebody was, who was living nearby the wall began to make repairs close to home. It was very easy and convenient to just go, go out and make repairs right by where you were living. And I really felt that God spoke to me this week and said, where do I begin? Where do I begin? Because our world is a mess, is it not? There's a lot of rubble. There's a lot of brokenness. So where do I begin? Where is God calling me to contribute? Where does God want me to be ministering? And I thought this was very important to think about. Start close to home. Start close to home. Who are you responsible for? Are you a mother, a father? Are you a, a brother, a husband, a wife, a sister? Who is it that God has placed right around you to minister his love and his hope to Number two, how has God uniquely positioned you? Maybe he's put you in a certain occupation. I spoke earlier about my son being called into rocket science and aerospace engineering. That's a unique calling, a unique gifting. How has God uniquely positioned you? Who has he put you around to minister hope to? Number three, who has God laid on your heart? Don't ignore his promptings. Sometimes God lays someone on our heart 
as we're walking through our day. It can happen just going out for a sandwich. Sometimes you might see someone who looks like they're down and out. And God prompts you, stop and and pray over that person. Stop and contribute in some way to their life. Minister hope and healing. And number four, how can you be more intentional? We can all just kind of go through our day, get to the end of our day and feel like, man, what, what was that all about? What did I really accomplish today? Was the glory of God at all displayed through my life today? We need to be more intentional with the moments that God places into our lives. They certainly were being intentional here. They were beginning close to home, and they were rebuilding the wall that was going to rebuild and restore the glory of God. Verse 28, each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, made repairs to another section. After them, Mesholam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his room. And next to him, Melchahijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. The goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate. Here we are at the close of this chapter, which has been filled with a bunch of names. There was over 50 different individuals or groups mentioned in this accounting. It took a large contribution from a number of people, and probably some were never even in the record that it contributed. Nehemiah is highlighting different people that probably led efforts in different sections of the city. You know, it'd be great one day, one Sunday, just to call out everybody's name in here and talk about all the contributions that you make in your life. Kurt, maybe that's a good idea someday. We'll just pause and just call up everyone up and say, look at the contribution Dan and Jan Gutierrez have made to the the kingdom of God and to restoring his glory in the place that God has put them. And we go through and we can name every one of you. And hopefully there's something that, to be said. And if there's not, it's never too late to get started on the work that God has for you. Amen? Amen. So I want to close with this. And this is something that, I, I really, that really stuck out to me was this, was this idea of the east gate being repaired. Where is our hope? Where is our hope? I believe it's found in the east gate. Ezekiel chapter 10 verses 16 through 22, and again in 11, 22 through 25. We don't have time to read that, but you can jot those down if you're taking notes. Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God departing from Jerusalem. During his day, the glory of God departed from the temple, and it departed through the east gate. What's exciting, though, is as you continue to read the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel has a vision And this vision is yet to be fulfilled. This is still future, even for us as the church today. It says that the glory of God will one day return in the same way that it had departed. 
it will return through the east gate in Jerusalem. Now the east gate is facing the Mount of Olives. It's facing the place where the Bible describes that Jesus was taken up into heaven after his resurrection. And Jesus was taken up and then two angels appeared to the men who were just dumbstruck. You can imagine if you knew Jesus and all of a sudden he just started rising up in the air and he disappeared through the clouds. He ascended to his rightful place in heaven. And the angels appeared and said, hey, what are you guys still staring at? Get busy. This same Jesus who just left you will come back the same way one day. And we still await that return of our Messiah, our King, our Lord Jesus. That is the great hope. Yes, there's hope in the resurrection. But if he left and is never coming to get us, that's discouragement. He's coming to get his bride, his church. Whether we are in the grave or whether we are alive and remain, the Bible tells us that one day he will pierce the clouds again. And he will come and he will descend and he will land there on the Mount of Olives, and he will walk right through the East Gate. Now, it's interesting, the Muslims, in about 500 A.D., they sealed up the East Gate of Jerusalem with 15 feet thick of concrete. Because they also dread that day. They fear that Israel's king is coming back. And so they said, oh yeah, we'll prevent him from going through the East Gate. And so even today, if you go to Jerusalem, there's a big wall of concrete in the east gate. But that's not going to keep our Lord out. Amen? Amen. Whether it's a supernatural walking through 15 feet of concrete, or whether they reopen that gate before his arrival, we don't know. The Muslims also put a cemetery right before the east gate, hoping that nobody goes through the the dead people before they get to the gate. We're going to keep this person out. But as much as Satan tries to keep him out and keep him down, our Lord Jesus overcomes Satan's antics and tactics. Amen? He can overcome everything in our life. Jesus will return as king. Amen? Today we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day where Jesus rode in as king of Israel. And they laid palm branches at his feet and said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One day, he's going to pierce the sky again and come for his bride, the church. And we look forward to that day with great hope and with great anticipation. And it's getting closer. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Duh, right? Right? But it's getting closer. You just look around at the events of our world, and you see that at some point, God's going to have enough. Just as it was in the days of Noah, God had enough. And Noah was chosen to be delivered and to be rescued from the wrath of God that was to come. Here's the good news. The ark door is still open. The door to get on to the the boat that leads to salvation is still wide open. And we, the church, should be calling people to get on board. And that door to go through, to get on board to safety, deliverance, is Jesus Christ. The door is still open. Let us be faithful as his church to proclaim a message of hope. This week we have an opportunity to go into our neighborhoods, the places where we work, and give an invitation 
to come and to hear about someone that can provide hope to a, a hopeless world, someone that can repair what is broken and save us from our sin. And that person is Jesus Christ. Is the church on board with that message? Is the church going to pick up their tools and get to work? I pray that we will. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for the story of Nehemiah. It's a true story. It was recorded for our benefit. And God, this, this chapter in particular, although it was tough to read through, God, it's a powerful picture of what you can do as your people become united around a vision, around a common cause. God, as we, as we approach Easter Sunday, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, God, I pray that your church will get united behind a cause. And that cause is this, that, that people need Jesus, and we have the opportunity to invite, to present that invitation before people. God, it's, it's up to them how they respond. And it's up to your spirit to convict and bring who you want to bring. But help us not be the nobles who wouldn't lift a finger. Help us not be the ones who get discouraged and so we get out of the fight because life is too complicated and messy. God, help us to remain faithful as your people, to do your work, to proclaim your glory. God, just as Nehemiah and those that are recorded in this text memorialize for their work on the wall to restore your glory and to benefit those around them. God, is that what our lives are all about? I pray that it be true. And I pray as we leave this place that we'll be focused on that mission above all else this week so that people can come to know your glory and be rescued from their sin. We pray this in Jesus' name.